Good evening and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH TV. Well, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese flew out of the country again yesterday, heading to a NATO meeting in Lithuania, where he will offer increased military and financial support to Ukrainians defending their land against invading Russians. If only he was so staunch in defence of territorial rights for his own citizens. Last week, the government of the Australian Capital Territory invaded Calvary Hospital on land legally occupied by the Catholic Church and forcibly repossessed it and all the assets thereon. Michelle Pearce, the new CEO of the Australian Christian Lobby, said in an email today, quote, the Labor Greens ACT government has forcibly taken over all land, property and assets of the hospital. So aggressive was the takeover that the legislation allowed for the deployment of police to use force as is reasonably necessary to gain control of the facility if necessary. It is reasonable to conclude the hostile takeover of Calvary is ideologically motivated. And if so, the assets grab is a thinly veiled attack on the religious freedoms of, uh, of institutions and citizens. But they're not the only ones whose property is under threat from the government. It wouldn't have bothered Albo much, but the farmers and other owners of blocks of land greater than 1,100 square metres that he flew over en route to Lithuania now have only slightly more autonomy over their property as Ukrainians trying to expel Russian soldiers from their apartment blocks in Bakhmut. Albo's Labour mate, former Premier Mark McGowan, uh, his parting gift to the good burghers of Western Australia is the revised Abor Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act, which makes it illegal to modify a block of land without approval from a local Aboriginal elder. And how do you know which elder is the elder for your area, I hear you ask? That's a good question. And the Director General of the WA Department of Planning, Lands and Heritage, Anthony Canis, has the answer. Quote, in terms of who to speak to, we've got guidelines on the website that give you guidance about how you consult with knowledge holders. Well, good luck with that. Not even the Deputy Premier of the state, Rita Safiotti, can book an elder to help open a freeway extension without some blow-in claiming joint eldership. Channel 7 reporter Jeff Parry did a great job putting Safiotti on the spot when the ceremony almost went up in smoke yesterday. The ribbon cutting on the $232 million project had to wait while traditional owners faced off. But I don't need these people coming out here thinking that you fellas could say this, say that on this land. It was an uncomfortable moment for the minister, caught up in a turf war among First Nations people. I don't need permission of you or anybody else. Neither do this I. is my country too. A traditional smoking ceremony going up in smoke after competing Aboriginal groups fired up at each other. I thought you fellas was from Mora. Well, you thought wrong. No. What do you, what do you make of this, minister? 
Oh, that's very interesting because obviously there's a lot of different Aboriginal groups with history in this area. So, um, did, yeah. Did you pick the wrong one for the smoking ceremony? No, I understand that was all handled by the department. So, anyway, we'll Oh, you just missed the last bit. She said, we'll work through it. We'll work through it. Well, that is easy for her to say. She's got staff to solve problems like this. Farmers, on the other hand, who spend seven days a week in the paddock just to stay financially afloat, don't have that kind of luxury. On Saturday, the new state premier, Roger Cook, told the West Australian newspaper, quote, our Aboriginal cultural heritage laws do the same thing as the voice, unquote. Well, they're the, they're the cultural heritage laws that are giving farmers so much grief. In other words, they trample all over your property rights. That's what the voice will do. No wonder the voice is being shouted down in the West. In O'Connor, one of the geographically largest electorates in the world, which takes up 1.26 million square kilometres of southern Western Australia, the local Liberal member, Rick Wilson, has surveyed constituents and found that 80% of them are planning to vote against The Voice. Well... That's a challenge for Anthony Albanese, who is, of course, the most avid supporter of The Voice in the entire country. His prime, minister, his prime ministership probably depends on it succeeding. So to win the state back, Albo is sending in the big gun herself, Indigenous Affairs Minister Linda Burney. I'm not sure what magic Albo thinks she can perform there, but given the treatment these farmers in WA have had from the local Aboriginal industry, Linda is going to be about as popular in Western Australia as Harry and Meghan would be attending Friday night drinks with staff at Netflix headquarters. Poor old Linda can't pull a trick these days, but at least she's consistent as her coalition counterpart, Jacinta Nampajimpa-Price, pointed out last week, Bernie has been working in Indigenous affairs for 44 years. She spent 22 years in the New South Wales Parliament and has been, federal, has been a federal MP since 2016 and Indigenous minister for a year. And according to Nampajimpa-Price, she has, quote, failed to produce the outcomes marginalised Indigenous people need. By those outcomes, those needed outcomes, price really means better school attendance for kids, more job opportunities for their parents, which in turn lead to intact families and safer, more secure homes. You know, like the ones you and I grew up in. It's not commonly said, but the best way to achieve this is to close down the so-called communities that these people live in and bring them into the cities where their needs in life are more easily provided. That was the intention from the very start of white settlement on this continent. The instructions issued to founding governor Arthur Phillip were to, quote, endeavour by every possible means to open an intercourse with the natives and to conciliate their affections, enjoining all our subjects to live in amity and kindness, 
with them, unquote. Despite occasional transgressions that nevertheless never seriously threatened to derail the good intentions from both sides, the process of living in amity and kindness continued to improve until recently when the left decided, appropriate, decided to appropriate Aboriginal welfare as its own cause celebre. This has accelerated since the fall of communism in 1991 when the culture was shifted from political to social. The left couldn't berate us for being political, politically conservative anymore, so they berated us for being socially conservative instead. The enormous progress our Indigenous brothers and sisters were making in assimilating to a modern liberal democracy were sacrificed. The Indigenous were redefined as having an affinity with the land that required them to be shoved into outback communities where they were out of sight, out of mind for the elites of the newly formed Aboriginal industry. The voice to Parliament is just the most audacious, the latest and most audacious manifestation of their political agenda. If it gets up, it will not only give Aboriginal elites a permanent voice in our constitution, it will also ensure that some of the most disadvantaged people living anywhere in any liberal democracy in the world are permanently trapped in outback communities in a cycle of welfare, depression, violence and hopelessness while their Indigenous betters enjoy power and privilege in the city. When contemplating the voice to Parliament as with any political, pro political proposal, the best guide is to follow the money. Who benefits? It's not the women and children enduring hellish lives surrounded by drunk, frustrated men in outback communities. It's people like Linda Burney and the rest of the Aboriginal industry. Well, joining me now is a regular guest here on ADH TV, James Allen, who has just returned from a European holiday. So he has plenty to talk about. James, welcome back to Australia. Thank you, Fred. Good to be here. First, let's to be good to be here while you Sorry, go well, ahead. Well, good to be here while the place still while the place is still around. Yeah, we'll get to yeah. that. In a, we'll get to that in a minute. But let's talk about Europe first. Now you've just been to Hungary, which is, uh, as most of the viewers would know, is a bastion of European conservatism and is enjoying a period of uninterrupted peace and prosperity. France, meanwhile, has been run by socialists for decades and is now enduring what looks like a civil war. James, I'm no political scientist, but could there be a link between socialism and societal decline? Yes, and I think the other thing going on, which nobody really wants to talk about, is, is the EU just detests Mr. Orban, the president of Hungary, because he refused to take any of the millions and millions of sort of immigrants that... Uh, the former Chancellor of Germany, Merkel, led in, so mostly young males from the Islamic world, and you know they were spread around Europe. And so you know, the, the great and the good can't stand Hungary, even though Mr. Orban regularly wins elections that are on any account you know, fair. You will hear the left-wing 
legacy media complain that, you know, Mr. Orban gets a lot of favorable coverage uh, in the media. By that, they mean just a little bit over half. Nobody says Joe Biden gets 95% favorable coverage or, you know, the ABC hasn't favored anyone but Labour since about uh, Federation. So... But James, you don't have to have been to Europe to see that uh, the metrics by which you should be able to measure political success are obvious for everyone to see. I mean, France is declining into some sort of socialist hell and uh, the Hungarians are just, you know, enjoying life uh, and their culture is perfectly, in culture and prosperity are both perfectly intact. Yes, I mean, we have to be fair. Hungary is a poor country because it had all those years as... Uh communist dictatorship. But what a lot of people here in Australia won't admit is that in Europe, the conservative political parties that are winning have basically Trump-like agendas to limit immigration, to, uh, you know, fight the culture wars. So you see a right of center government in Sweden, of all places, obviously in Italy, because Georgia Maloney, I think she's the most popular, domestically popular leader in Europe. Uh, Finland's going that way. And whereas when you look at the UK with a supposedly conservative government that hasn't done a single conservative thing, can't stop the immigration is the biggest spending, biggest taxing government since Attlee. You know, they're, they're miles behind in the polls. And then, to be honest, Rishi Sunak has been woefully awful and deserves to get destroyed. So, you know, I hate it when you're here in Australia and you hear these pseudo-conservatives say, I don't want to fight the culture wars. You can't, you know, you can't exist as a conservative party unless you're prepared to fight cultural issues. There, there, you can't just have some sort of economic um, manifesto or agenda if, if, you know, your regular citizens don't understand about risk-taking and they don't understand about delayed gratification, uh, you know, and they don't, you, know, you, you need a healthy culture to have a healthy economy. And, yeah. And so well, we, we actually have to be Let's, let's let's get to the the culture wars in a minute, and it's, I know it's something that you're passionate about, and we are here at ADH TV too because not enough people are talking about it. But just just as a, one little aside, was it a relief to come back to Australia because you know the rest of the world is is degenerating? There's a lot of political and and social unrest around the world. Australia is kind of shielded from it, although. You know, our own government is uh, doing its best to catch up to the to the other degenerating cultures around the world. But was it a relief to come home to Australia? Well, you know, to be fair, Fred, after um, Hungary, my wife and I went up to the Dolomites, the, to the very top tip of uh, Italy, and that's pretty much shielded from everything uh, in the last hundred years. So we just hiked up mountains and drank, you know, German beer. So that was pretty pleasant. But uh, you come back to Australia. And we've got this horrible anti-free speech bill. We've got a government that's overseen, what, 4 or 5% drop in productivity. I mean, the, the, I come from a family of economists. The one measure that correlates almost perfectly one-to-one -one with wealth is productivity. Our productivity in this country is cratering. And labor's making it worse. They're putting the unions in. They want to put the unions in where the contractors are. You know, they, they, they've got, they're paying out so much money in disability, there's no incentive to work. You know, our, and, and plus they're, you know, closing down anybody who wants to bring in a new mine. And so yeah. our productivity is tanking. It's terrible. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to lead to really bad economic times. Well, the most Leave frustrating. Leave aside the net 
You decided, sorry? Leave aside the net zero idiocies. Well, yes, and leave, it, leave aside the voice. I mean, in Western Australia, the, uh, the West Australian uh, Premier has said that the, uh, the, the Aboriginal heritage uh, legislation that's, that's frustrating uh, farmers over in the West now because they can't do anything to their land without getting permission from some anonymous uh, local elder the Premier has said that that is the same as The Voice. I mean, that's pretty much belling the cat, isn't it? Talk about productivity. The Voice is going to kill us. Look, I'm a, I'm a big no supporter, so I feel like uh, the Premier is an undercover deep agent for the no people. <laughs> let's, let, let's let him keep talking. I mean, I put him on TV every night. Yeah. Uh, we should get this we should get the approval of this down into the 20s if he keeps talking. Well, I think Chris Minns did the same thing. He gave away Goat Island while you're away. You might not have heard about this. Goat Island, one of the most prime bits of land in the entire country. It's bang in the middle of Sydney Harbour. Beautiful spot. He's, he's giving it away to uh, the supposedly traditional owners, along with $43 million to be spent on, uh, on, on renovating the place. But get this, James. He has to conduct research into who those elders are because he doesn't know who. So no. uh, yeah. I, I, if you've got a, got a you little wanna, inkling you know, of... You, know, go you know what really irks me, Fred? Liberal parties say they're against this, but when they get back into office, they never do anything about it. They never say, we're, take, we're taking this back. And they never say, you know, we're going to repeal this horrible Bill of Rights. We, did, we were against everything they're against. And Labour knows this. As soon as it's enacted, they just roll over. They never fight on any front. You know, you the last people on earth you would have wanted to be in World War One trench with was any MP for the Liberal Party. The spines of jellyfish, you know, so they don't stand and fight on any front. It's just, it's astounding. Well, let me give you two names of people who have spines of steel. One is Jared Rennick, who's a uh, senator, yep. LNP senator from your state in Queensland one of the finest senators of this parliament or any Australian parliament, in my opinion. He's last week lost his spot on the LNP ticket for the next federal election and will probably be out on his ear. One of the greatest assets to the LNP and he's gone. Another one down in Victoria, uh, the Liberal Party failed to select John Roscombe, who you'd know as the leader of the Institute of Public Affairs. He has decades of experience and wisdom and dedication to the party. He failed to get selection for a uh, forthcoming by-election in Warrandyte. So, James, it's not that uh, the Liberals don't want to fight the culture wars. They don't want people in their ranks who would fight the culture wars. Look, I'll take those in reverse order, Fred. So John Roskin was a, he should have been a sure thing. The current leader, the, the man who doesn't know what a woman is and, and uh, basically threw one out because people she didn't even know stood behind her in a photo was disgraceful. Um, John Pasuto backed the 22-year-old woman over John Roskam. Now, she didn't end up winning, but, you know, we have a leader who's so afraid of any competition. Uh, I mean, I, I, I can't stand Dan Andrews, but to be honest, I couldn't vote for John Pasuto. He's, he's a disgrace, and the, the sooner the Victorian Liberal Party gets him out as leader, the better. As far as Queensland's concerned, you know, one of the sad things there, there were only three or four members of parliament who stood up against the lockdown, you know, mania. So the masks, which we now know based on the Cochrane Review, which is gold standard meta-analysis, masks don't do anything. 
and um, the lockdowns and how bad they were going to be. And, uh, you know, the awfulness of vaccine mandates and the where did the virus come from? Was it in the lab? All those kind of questions, which were if you if you voiced a skeptical view, you were deemed to be a, a conspiracy theory. Well, we all now we now know that they're all basically true. And Rennick was one of the few people who stood up against the party room. George Christensen, another one, out. You know, pretty much the party is eliminating the Mavericks. And they weren't really Mavericks. They were right. Now, to give Dutton credit, he did write a letter in support of Rennick. So this looks terrible. His home base of Queensland, these selectors in Queensland went against their own state man who's the prime minister or the leader of the opposition. And, you know, you have to wonder what's going on. Is the Malcolm Turnbull wing of the LNP stronger than the Dutton wing? I mean, do we put this down to James McGraw, who was the numbers man for Turnbull? I don't know. I don't really know who, who orchestrated this. But, uh, well, you know, one, one at least way, Queensland. Well, one, way the, the, sorry, well, one way the coalition could retrieve its uh, standing in the conservative community as you alluded to, would be by pushing for a royal commission into COVID lockdowns. I mean, Sweden has already held one. They've wrapped theirs yeah, up I know, already. But, you know, Fred, are we going to get a Swedish royal commission? I doubt it. What we're going to get is a British royal commission. The judge there started the royal commission by making people take a lateral flow tests. This is the independent judge who's going to consider the. So, you know, they probably had to come in masked. And if you watch what's happening in Britain, what you're getting is the establishment who were all in on every aspect of lockdown is conducting a review because they feel like we should have locked down even earlier. I mean, I have no confidence in the Royal Commission. Uh, there wasn't a single judge who spoke out against this except for uh, Lord Sumption in Britain. And we're not going to get a sort of maverick or even an independently minded person running the commission. Uh, all you're going to get is uh, sort of people who had a committed, vested interest in supporting what the government did because, you know, they didn't speak out against it at the time. And even though we know that the cost of lockdowns are 10, 15 times the benefits, I don't have any confidence that a Royal Commission will do anything. Zero. The gains that could be made by a political party that did pursue a Royal Commission are enormous in my opinion because we people like you and I we talk we often see this thing in political terms we talk about it in political terms but you don't have to look very deeply James to see that there are thousands if not tens of thousands of Australians whose lives have been thoroughly I mean destroyed is not too harsh a word to use. Well, I, I agree with I've all that. I've spoken to these the people myself part. on this show. I mean, these yeah. are people grieving for lost husbands and wives and children. Got it. But there seems to be this view amongst people that if you have a royal commission, you're going to get some omniscient, godlike figure running it who's going to be wholly independent. The woman who's the judge running it in Britain, it's going to take, you know, it's looking like it's going to take four years to report. And right now, she's hearing people who said we should have locked down earlier. So you'll have to be careful what you wish for with the Royal Commission. Yeah. You could actually make things worse if they come back and say we should have locked down earlier. Well, I mean, yeah. why do you think they're going to appoint a judge? Why do you think Labor's going to appoint a judge who's remotely, it won't be a judge, but a retired judge or any figure who's going to be remotely sympathetic to the views you and I have? It's not going to happen. Yeah, So, I, I mean, I, yeah. I am 
gravely skeptical that a royal commission will do anything. Well, that's why we've got to keep fighting the culture wars because this culture uh, is fighting. yeah is deeply embedded in all our institutions. Now, you alluded to the John Hopkins meta study a, a minute ago that found that the cost of the lockdowns was somewhere between 10 and 20 times higher than the benefits. Yeah. I'd suggest yeah. Australia is at the high end of that range, wouldn't you? Oh, yes, I would say so too. And we're going to see it. You know, the economy is not looking good over the middling term. Uh, so it's actually Johns Hopkins. I don't know why. It's two plurals back to back. Two guys set up the university. It's, it's a great medical university, by the way. It's one of the top premier medical schools in the U U.S., and it also has a great economics department. And, you know, the study is so damning. We heard all these pontificating, moralizing, sanctimonious bags of wind at the time say, you know, if you're against any of this, you're a granny killer. Well, look at the data right now on cumulative excess deaths, and ours are worse than Sweden. And Sweden didn't lock down. They haven't destroyed their productivity. They didn't bankrupt small business, and they didn't saddle young people, kids, grandkids, with massive amounts of debt, all brought to you by the Liberal Party, of course, by the way. And so, you know, it's it's obvious now that the cost of these lockdowns, and not only were the costs ginormous, you know, the other thing that's apparent now is some of the data coming out of Israel, for instance, and some other country is they can't find anybody under the age of 40 who died of COVID who didn't have two serious medical conditions. You know, so all these politicians and, you know, pathetic public health bureaucrats who got up and said, we're all in this together. Well, young people had zero risk. I mean, literally, unless you're on chemotherapy. I'd li and so they had they lost two years of schooling. They had mental health problems because they were imprisoned at home. They didn't get to do exercise there, you know, obesity problems. And these pontificating people who didn't lose a penny of their salary because they were in the laptop class, and they purport to be these uh, moralizing, sympathetic people. They destroyed many young people's lives. You can't catch up from missing two years of school. It's fine if you're from the upper middle class and you've got a mom who stays home and you know does the schooling with you for two years. But if you're from the lower middle class, you get nothing. And you know they will never catch up. There's even evidence that that, that sort of uh, effect affects your life expectancy. Wow. And so, yeah. you know, well, I, I was um, I was grateful during COVID that my kids had finished school because, uh, you know, I, I actually raised. Now you my... surprised me, Fred. Well, you surprised me on that one. It's not a genetic test, though. <laughs> but I, I deeply, <laughs> I deeply uh, sympathise with people who were trying to get through. I do too. It's hard enough under normal circumstances to get kids off to school and make sure they're yes. doing their homework. Imagine. You know, and if you're a single parent, I mean, the, the government made it impossible for these people and the, the repercussions will be long term. Now, we said we mentioned Fred, should, it, was the, it, was, go on. Sorry, it was the biggest transfer of wealth those three years ever from the poor to the rich and from the young to the old. It was the best three years ever to be a billionaire. You know, it was a massive widening of income inequality. But, you know, if you're in the public service on a nice big salary, you could stay at home and you got to sort of work on your, uh, you know, alternative cooking while you pretended to be working from home. It was 
Yeah. A lot of those people were quite happy. Yeah, suddenly everyone was baking sourdough. Yeah, yeah. yeah but I mean, yeah. we mentioned we mentioned should there be a uh, a royal commission? Surely now there is a very very persuasive case for the abolition of the human rights commissions because they simply didn't stand up when they were needed. What a joke! And and let let readers guess of the seven human rights commissioners, all on four hundred thousand plus. How many were appointed by the coalition? All of them, all of them. And there wasn't a single peep. There wasn't a single, you know, Lord Sumption calls it the worst inroads in our civil liberties in 300 years. They can't find anything to say. But, you know, wait till some supposed refugee finds some little niggling grievance and they'll be all over it. It's, it's an absolute disgrace. How they can stand up and purport to care about human rights. You know, the president is now, bumbling on about her idea for a bill of rights and again i have to point out to people no country in the world that had a strong bill of rights did anything to protect people's civil liberties during the referendum or during covid because all the bill of rights does is buy you the views of the judicial class and they were almost 100 percent in favor of the lockdown you know, so it's, that's a it's, that's a very succinct, really very succinct way of putting it. Buy you the views of the judicial class. Now, I just want to make a little segue before we before we go, because there, and I'm I'm absolutely I'm really uh, intrigued to get your impression of this. While you were away, as you all know, because it was part of an election uh, promise, we uh, saw the beginning of the federal anti-corruption commission. Now that means we now have one in every state and one federally. Now, make this uh, make this clear for me, James. Why do we even need these things? If someone breaks a law or somebody is corrupt, it's against the law. They should be hauled before a court. What do these corruption commissions actually achieve? Well, I think your your viewers need to know that they don't have anything like this in Britain. They don't have anything like this in Canada. They don't have anything like this in New Zealand. And they don't have anything like this in the U.S. And they sort of operate outside the normal procedures, the, the presumption of innocence. Now, I don't know why any right of center liberal party would ever uh, want one of these things. But of course, the Morrison government was the ones that got this rolling and they started talking about it. And at New South Wales, the courts gave the former liberal New South Wales government a perfect opportunity to ditch the whole thing. And they didn't. They passed legislation to retrospectively fix it. You know, what are, what are these people doing? Uh, leave aside that in New South Wales, the only people that ICAC ever goes after are conservatives. I mean, it's ridiculous. You either have a, a functioning criminal justice system or you don't. But the idea that you need these sort of star chambers, and it does function effectively like a star chamber. You have no uh, sort of sort of criminal protections, criminal There's no checks and balances. No, there's no checks and balances, is there? No, there's just these star chamber people who can walk you before the cameras, which they always do. And then half the time, you know, it turns out that uh, they were wrong, but you've already destroyed the politician's career. Yeah. And they don't, you know, they can't go back into parliament. I don't understand why any MP who has any self-respect says we want an ICAC. Yeah. I mean, I understand why the Liberal Party does it, because whatever Labour says, the Liberal Party says, oh, yeah, OK, let's do that. Because, you know, I don't want to get offside with the ABC because they're such an important constituency for the Liberal Party. 
it's just beyond belief. It's like they take their, their marching orders from the Guardian editorial that morning. <laughs> There's so many after, after this. Oral. Well, we've, we've put Australia to rights. Uh, if, only, uh, if only the government would listen to us, they would have saved half of uh, their budget on all these useless institutions. James Allen, thanks so useless. much for your time. Useless. Thanks. Thank you. That's the acerbic but eminently reasonable yeah. Queensland University law professor, James Allen. Well, let's now cross to another Queensland guest and someone who will be joining us more often from now on, the wonderfully theatrical, articulate, opinionated and eminently sensible commentator, Daisy Cousins. Daisy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Fred, for having me and thank you for that absolutely fabulous introduction. You are too kind. Well, the first of many, I think, because for many years you have been a regular on Sky News Australia, which without going into too much detail is no longer the case, which fortunately frees you up to spend more time on ADH, where your own brilliantly entertaining videos about pop culture have been appearing since last year. So now for the benefit of the viewers who haven't been following you lately or you know, aren't that in immersed in pop culture, Tell us about how you fell into this world of common sense commentary, Daisy. Oh, well, it's, it's, it's quite a story. I mean, I think I've always been naturally conservative. Like ever since I was, I was a teenager, I sort of was very much an individualist, a bit contrarian. I didn't like group projects at school and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I've always been fiscally conservative. But as a lot of people do, um, they have sort of more socially liberal views when they're younger. What's the saying? You know, if you're, if you're not a socialist at 20, you don't have a heart. But if you're still a socialist at 40, you don't have a brain. It's, it's, that, it's that whole thing. Um, but I, I think in my, in my mid-20s, I had a little bit of an existential crisis, as, as one does. And so I turned to, to writing more. And I've, I've always been interested in politics because I think if you're interested in people, you're going to be interested in politics. Um, and inevitably, I fell into writing about politics. I, I started working at Quadrant magazine. Um, I was the editorial assistant there. Absolutely love that place. Um, from there, I was introduced to The Spectator, of course, with the impeccable Rowan Dean um, at the helm. And of course, the wonderful Alexandra Marshall now. Absolutely love her. We're all um, colleagues here, then, yes. Absolutely. Yep. We love them. We love them so much. And then I fell into television, funnily enough, because the producers of Q&A of all programs uh, came across a couple of my articles in uh, late 2016, just after Trump had won the election, and they invited me to come on the show. This terrified me, um, as it was my very, very first experience of live panel television, was in fact Q&A in early 2017, and it was filmed in Melbourne in front of an audience of very angry millennial SJWs who were sitting in the front row staring at me with raging hatred when I said that I was a Trump supporter. Uh, but I got through the evening, Fred, and from then on I, I moved into Sky News where I had, had, had an absolutely wonderful time. Um, I started my YouTube channel and fast forward to 2023, a new chapter begins for me at ADH, and I'm very, very excited. Yeah, we're very excited about it too. But where do you get your contrarian nature from? Do you do you resile from the from the uh, from the anger and uh, vilification that the other side is so quick to uh, throw at people like you and I? 
don't know. I think I've just always had my own way of doing things, um, if that makes any sense. Ever since I was a, a little child, I've always been inherently suspicious of popular trends. Like I hated the Spice Girls on principle because everyone else liked them when I was growing up and because I, 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 you know, I didn't like their music when everyone else did uh, for genuine reasons. So I think it's just inherent in my nature. But um, in, in addition to that, I, I think conservatives, particularly those who are under 40, they just have an inherent curiosity and an inherent skepticism about things. And I think I became more and more conservative because I realized that things that were being presented to me didn't add up. And that really very much was in the context of feminism above anything else. You know, young women get browbeaten with that in their 20s. Um, and things just, I, I was accepting it because I, there was no other cultural influence that I had socially to give me any alternative perspective. But Fred, you know, I just didn't think it added up. I thought, how can people get away nowadays with paying women less than men for the same work? And I don't think all men are bad. Like, what is this patriarchy? I don't think I've ever been held back by my gender. Just things didn't add up. And so I started researching, you know, inherently curious, uh, you know, came across some different sources, some different commentators. And Fred, I realized um, I'd been lied to. I literally just realized I'd been lied to. And when I realized that I could throw off the shackles of thinking I had to be this big feminist in my 20s, it was the most, I think, one of the most empowering moments of my life when I realized that I was not going to be held back in life because I'm a woman. And that made me furious. It made me furious, Fred, because I thought there are so many young women out there who are being lied to by these toxic women and made to feel bad about themselves and bad about their gender, like they can never succeed because somehow men will run the universe. It is not true. We are all equal and free human beings. And the sooner more young women realize that, the better, because it was great for me when I did. Well, one of the mottos I like to repeat on this show is that the truth vindicates. And that's where... People like you obviously get their strength from because you know in the end the truth is always going to be on your side uh, if you follow the crowd and find the safety of the crowd. Uh, if you know that you're being deluded, then the safety of the crowd is not very safe at all. Now, but you you come from quite a... a you're rare on this side of, uh, of the debate, Daisy, because... You have a very theatrical background. Your dad's a, a, one of Australia's greatest actors. I worked with him myself, not as an actor. I was uh, working alongside him, Peter Cousins, fantastic bloke. Who are, I'd like to know, who are your heroes in this political fight? Because I imagine you'd have a pretty, a unique set of heroes or, or sort of uh, inspirations. <sighs> Oh God, you know, you know what? That's a that's a tough one because like there's there's sort of change, like as time goes on, as people take sort of, you know, more, more roles in the in the culture war. And I, I I take influence from a lot of people. I mean, Margaret, Margaret Thatcher, of of course, that's sort of quite cliched, but there's a reason for that because because she's fabulous, you know. <laughs> there's so much to be learned from her. You know, she's she's fabulous. Um, I do love Donald Trump and I'm still very happy to say that. He's made a few uh boo-boos along the way, but we are all only human and have to be allowed our boo-boos. Um I love his theatrical brand of politics. He was exactly what not just American politics but global politics needed. Um, and he is someone who is just unafraid. He is just 
unafraid and he says what he thinks and he lives in the moment. And I think that is just incredible. And I really draw inspiration as well from the other sort of online commentators out there. Like I love the crew at the Daily Wire, for instance. I love their humor and, and their way of presentation. Um, you know, there are some really, really great independent commentators out there as well. So I, I have a few um, a few people that I draw lots of influence from, and I'm very lucky that I have that many good influences. Well, I think we're lucky to have you on board now because as Donald Trump's campaign uh, continues to get more and more theatrical, we've got someone like you to uh, keep us abreast of it, which is going to be very, very entertaining. Now, here's a more philosophical question for you. The, as you know, you, I think you've said it quite a few times yourself, that the left has adopted things like, uh, you know, the rewriting of our history and, and the, the uh, elevation of our Indigenous brothers and sisters to a sort of deified uh, culture, as well as uh, mm. the env environmentalism. All of this has religious overtones. Now, here's a question for you, Daisy. Can people on our side of this, uh, this culture war win it if we too don't assume some sort of religious perspective for our side of the fight? You know what, I, I think we can um, because at the end of the day, People do get influenced by dogma. Um, that's human nature. And that's because dogma is preceded by fear. You know, I think we saw this in COVID. I mean, fear is about the most powerful tool that anyone has to influence people. And that's where the left gets it right. They, you know, with the climate change browbeating and really all the all the ideological browbeating. But at the end of the day, I think that there are enough curious people out there who get tired of being frightened. Um, and when, and I know that, like in my sort of circles, people around my age who have had similar experiences to me and they, you know, they wake up and they think, oh, a lot of this doesn't add up. People get tired of being frightened and they get tired of being browbeaten and they look for other sources of information. And when they find out, as, as I did, that they've been lied to, well, they're ours for life. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? They're never going back there. So I do think it's just a matter of consistency. I don't think conservatives need to offer the same kind of, you know, terrifying dogma, but I think we just need to be happy. We need to be positive. We need to be fun. And we just need to keep telling the truth. And people do eventually get there. Happy and positive. What they're two very good words. You don't actually hear them often enough these days. Now, you are very immersed in the culture war because your, uh, your um, YouTube channel and the, the videos that you've been posting to ADH primarily are preoccupied with uh, pop culture, which is not in a good way these, these days. We have kids who mm. think boys can be girls, that the planet is about to explode and that Australia is a horrible racist country. Now, all of this is giving mm. our young people enormous levels of anxiety. Now, you mentioned you know, happiness and optimism before, but I mean, is it possible to bring Australia's young people who've been so brainwashed out of all that anxiety and into the sunlight of happiness and positivity? Oh, look, you know, Fred, it's going to be really hard. Uh, I mean, this is where I, I despair of my generation, like millennials. I'm embarrassed by them. I think they're a lost cause. Um, I think with this younger generation, if it weren't for the climate change browbeating, um, we'd have quite a good shot with them because they're very kind of individualistic and 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 they are inherently skeptical, skeptical and they're the information generation. They have, you know, the world's information at their fingertips. But it is really hard to cut through to young people 
people um, because popular culture is so heavily influenced by the left. And as the saying Andrew Breitbart said, politics is downstream from culture. People do get naturally more conservative as they get older, but I think nowadays um, with home ownership and having children sort of on the decline amongst young people, those are the two big things that make people at least fiscally conservative. Um, so conservatives really are facing an uphill battle here. Um, I think it is possible, but it is unfortunately just going to be time consuming and we just have to be ready to put in that time. Well, we are here at ADH and we know you are too, Daisy. That's a very good taste of what we can expect uh, more often here on ADH. And we are so glad to have you as part of the team. Daisy, welcome and thanks for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Fred. That's Daisy Cousins, who's a YouTube star and uh, now a, uh, a popular contributor to ADH TV. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. If you want to see more ADH content, have a look around our website or app for some of the best commentary in the nation from people like Mark Stein, Alan Jones, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, Dave Pellow, and more. Tell your friends, ADH is the new home for common sense commentary, and there is no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you next Monday at 7 p.m. Good night.